Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Well, it's finally summer. In normal times, we'd be looking forward to preseason training camps, preseason games, maybe some player uh, movement around the different parts of the NFL, but... Way back when, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, there was something else that football fans looked forward to, and that was the annual college football all-star game. It was an institution, really, uh, going back to 1934, uh, under the name of the Chicago Charities College All-Star Game. And it was a brainchild of a guy named Arch Ward, who was a sports editor of the Chicago Tribune. And on July 6, 1934, Arch Ward announces new creation, this college football all-star game. It would be something no one had ever seen before. It would pit the defending champions of the National Football League, the NFL, against the best of the just-graduated senior class from the college ranks. And better yet, fans from all over the country could vote on who would be one of the college all-stars. So with something new, something everyone looked forward to and this arch ward he was he was really quite the innovative guy he was the main force behind the start of the major league all-star game and then as part of the world's fair or columbia exposition in chicago in 33 and 34 he was looking for something else kind of a football contribution to that the great fair that was held there and so in the middle of 1934 he decided that they would have this game he got a network of over 30 newspapers to support the Chicago Tribune and fan voting opened up right away in July and fans had a month or so to decide who would be on the college all-stars. That first game, it was a a lot of people were concerned about it. Uh, How would the pros do against the college players? Not the other way around as we would think today. But Clark Shaughnessy, who was the University of Chicago coach at the time and also helped out with the Bears with George Hellas. He said something like, I can't think of any college group that can whip the Bears, but you can never tell. The pros themselves were very excited about it. Red Grange, the legendary halfback from Illinois and the Chicago Bears, was right at the end of his career. The twilight of the Red Grange years was upon us. His last year would be 1934. Red Grange was very excited about the possibility He was asked, what's it going to be like? Are you anxious to play the college all-stars? And he said, you bet. Bring them on. What a treat. This will be America's team, the people's choice, and there can be no question of the superiority of the professional football players after we whip them. All I can say is, I hope these old bones stand up against those young punks. So that was Red Grange in 1934. Of course, with the Tribune being the largest paper in the Midwest, There was a lot of good publicity for the college all-star game. Every day we'd learn something new about the college all-stars and their group that came to Chicago to play. And 
The game itself was a little bit of a disappointment on the field, not at the gate, because almost 80,000 people showed up to see the game back on August 31st, 1934, but it kind of ended in a dreadful 0-0 tie between the Bears and the College All-Stars. A year later, the Bears returned and won the game 5-0 over the All-Stars, which featured a young man from the University of Michigan called Gerald Ford. Of course, we know now that he eventually became president of the United States. The first college win didn't occur until 1937, and that was 6-0 over the Packers. It was a TD pass caught by Gus Tingley of the Chicago, who would soon be a member of the Chicago Cardinals. By 1940, the Chicago Tribune claimed that over 400 newspapers were in its network. Fans could vote all over, and several hundred thousand fans would vote every year, 11 players at a time, to see who would be on the college All-Stars. But that brings us to the subject of our discussion tonight. It's the 1948 College All-Star game, and the opponents for the College All-Stars at that time were the Chicago Cardinals, the defending or the 1947 NFL champions who had defeated the Philadelphia Eagles the previous December 28-21. The NFL was at a bit of a crossroads with this game. There was a lot of anticipation to see which team was better, the college players or the more seasoned pros. But up until this time, the college All-Stars actually held their own against the pros. In fact, in both 1946 and 1947, The All-Stars won both games 16 to nothing against the Rams and against the Bears in 1947. But 1948, when the Cardinals are gonna take place in this game or take their place in the game, Arch Ward had already started something new called the All-American Football Conference, a competing professional league with a team in Chicago called the Rockets. The NFL wasn't too happy about this. In fact, Arch Ward also tried to get rid of the NFL after this game and replaced a professional representative with a team from his own league. But the NFL uh, really didn't have much to do with it, but the board of directors of the Chicago Tribune said, no, we're going to stick with the NFL. And there was still a great feeling that the professionals were not as good as the best college players, especially since the pros had lost two games in a row. So the NFL itself was looking for the Cardinals to defeat or derail the recent pattern of performances of its league champions against the college All-Stars. But as the months went by and the weeks went by, the promotion of the Tribune heavily favored the All-Stars, and clearly the Cardinals were viewed as the underdogs. But sales were incredible. Over a month before the August 20th, 1948 game, The game itself was declared a sellout with over 100,000 tickets sold. This would be the largest crowd ever to see the Cardinals play to this date in the United States. At one time, the team played a game in Mexico, but attendance figures, even though they indicated there were over 100,000, have been questioned at times. So it's safe for us to say that the 101,220 that attended the 1948 College All-Star game is the largest crowd ever to see the Cardinals play. One of the more intriguing aspects of the 1948 College All-Star Game was the coaching matchup between the legendary Frank Leahy of Notre Dame, who would be taking over the All-Star coaching duties, and he would be up against Jimmy Councilman, 
of the Cardinals, who had one time been around the league as a player, a coach, as well as an owner of the Detroit franchise. Councilman was entertaining. The reporters loved to talk to Jimmy and see what he had to say, and very modest. He was always kind of putting his team down a little bit, and he mentioned to the Tribune before the game, he said, you know, we have more problems than I care to enumerate, but overconfidence isn't one of them, he said, in respect to the chances his Cardinals might have against the All-Stars. And Arch Ward, the sports editor of the Tribune, who we talked about earlier, he said, the pros are desperate for a victory. And if the All-Star staff or players think they're in for a mild workout, they will be rudely shaken. So there was a kind of a feeling that the Cardinals didn't have much of a chance against this collection of All-Stars. The Tribune covered the game extensively, and we even learned about uh, what the All-Stars were fed. For example, the 71 members of Leahy's All-Stars were very hungry athletes. They were housed up at Northwestern University. The Tribune ran uh, these numerous daily articles on the players, including the initial food order that was placed to feed them during their time there which was 1,500 pounds of choice beef, 360 pounds of chicken, 300 dozen eggs, 1,500 pounds of Idaho potatoes, and 450 gallons of milk. Meanwhile, the opposing coach, Jimmy Councilman, just moaned. It's a little different when a player is injured in the All-Star camp. All coach Frank Lee he has to do is telephone for room service, and they will carry another player to the field. With us, meaning the Cardinals, it's a little different. We have about 22 men in camp with professional experience, and when injuries take away about five a day, we are down a little less than enough players to man the 11 positions. In an effort to get his team ready for the All-Star game, and I kind of like to call it the Super Bowl back then because it drew more fans than any other regular season game. Uh, The interest nationwide for one football game involving the pros was unprecedented. But the fact was, it was really the opening game, the opening preseason exhibition game of the NFL season, which meant that it would be for a long, long campaign for the defending champs. Councilman took his Cardinals to camp up in Waukesha, Wisconsin on July 31st, and unfortunately, he encountered a whole bunch of injuries. He had two-a-day drills. He wanted to make sure the men were in regular season shape to face the All-Stars. It's difficult uh, that he mentioned to prepare specifically for a team that was put together really for only one game. No scouting reports, no film. But the importance of the game was not lost on the players or the coaches for the Cardinals. For example, Mel Kuttner shared the anxiety of the coaching staff with the Chicago Tribune. He said, when I go back on defense, this is in a scrimmage, and fail to knock down a pass in my zone, I steal myself or remark, from the coaches and I am never disappointed. Only some of the time, two of the coaches sing a duet in my direction instead of a solo. Some days you just can't win. So there was this really strong pressure for the Cardinals to regain the prestige of the NFL, which had lost in the two previous All-Star games. But injury soon became a problem for Councilman, with over half of his roster nursing an injury or an illness just two weeks before the game. Said Councilman, the rules are pretty thorough, but they don't exactly say we can't equip our fellows with uh, crutches for the game. I suppose there would be some objection if we put men in wheelchairs at the kickoff, particularly if the wheelchairs were equipped with motors. 
Finally, the perplexed coach, in a shout-out to his players as they took the field, said, Fellas, no contact work today, and keep away from those long grass blades. They can be treacherous. So, with his team hobbled by injuries and illness, Councilman himself was giving off the aura that his team really had no chance against the All-Stars. Meanwhile, Coach Leahy was concerned about the Cards' fearsome running attack. They still had the dream backfield. Leahy said, I read recently that the Cardinals last fall literally burned up the grass of Comiskey Park with their great speed, and I surely hope Jimmy Councilman will slow them down a bit on August 20th. Leahy's team, however, was loaded with many stars who would become pros very quickly, such as George Connor, Charlie Connery, Johnny Lujak, and Chalmers Elliott. And with 71 players assigned to the All-Star squad, Leahy had no fears of running out of fresh players in the warm confines of Soldier Field. With the collegiate stars plastered all over the newspapers in the months before the game, Councilman pulled off a bit of gamemanship that night by not arriving with a supposedly ignored team until less than two hours before the kickoff, and Jimmy was ready. One account said in his pre-game speech, Jimmy got so wound up. He had a magazine and a newspaper wrapped up in his hand, and he kept pounding his palm of his other hand with the newspaper and pointing out to different players and telling them they'd be ready tonight. He reminded the fact there was over 100,000 human beings that would be watching in Soldier Field. As he paced up and down the dressing room with his rolled up paper in his hand, and suddenly a, a drunk wandered in the locker room. He looked around and he hollered, Hey, where's that great coach Jimmy Councilman? Give me a look at that old so-and-so. Councilman, with his back turned to the drunk, whirled around quickly and threw his rolled up newspaper at the drunk so hard that he fell down. The players were a bit frozen. They didn't know whether to laugh or cry. But soon the entire crowd of the uh, players of the Cardinals broke out in hilarious laughter as their coach got up, dusted himself off, and walked out of the dressing room with his grinning players right behind him. That night, they played one of the greatest games in Cardinals history. And yes, the Cardinals defeated the All-Stars 28-0. Elmer Angsman and Vic Schwal scored a pair of rushing touchdowns to give the Cards a 14-0 halftime lead. In the second half, lineman Vince Bononis returned an intercepted pass 27 yards for another score, and then quarterback Ray Maloff wrapped up the scoring with an 11-yard toss to Charlie Trippi. At that time, the victory margin was the largest up to that time in All-Star history. The Cardinals played just like I expected, said All-Star quarterback Johnny Lujak from Notre Dame. It's a rough, tough league. And his teammate, Ziggy Zabowski, added, The Cards had a great team on the field. Charlie Trippi and Elmer Angsman are two of the finest backs in pro football. That's all I can say. The Cardinals truly had brought prestige back to the NFL. One witness noted that the Cardinals were the most perfectly coached team in action, while the Birmingham Sun wrote from Alabama, the Cardinals were out to win, but they were unmerciful. They were cool and masterful. The victory in the annual battle returned some prestige to the NFL, whose two previous champs had fallen to the Collegians in 46 and 47, as we mentioned. Meanwhile, perhaps the biggest winner on this night was the fledgling entertainment vehicle of television. The WGN broadcast team of Jack Brickhouse and Ed Cooper, along with three cameras, 
with new sensitive image orthicon tubes, according to the Chicago Tribune, reached an estimated half million viewers in the Midwest. And the Tribune added that telecasting of the game did for television what the Dempsey-Carpentier fight did for radio in 1921. In conclusion, the Tribune noted, it was pointed out that the football lends itself admirably to television and that the game did a good job of interesting the general public in the new entertainment medium, that being television. And so the Cardinals can not only take credit for being the oldest team in the NFL, but also the one that perhaps set the stage for the behemoth known today as televised football. After the game, the tired players said goodbye to their families and boarded the bus back to Waukesha. They were a little irritated at Coach Councilman because they wanted to spend time with their families after undergoing over three weeks of really tough drills up at their training camp. But they got on the bus, and as the bus headed through downtown Chicago and headed north into the farm fields north of the city and across the state line of Wisconsin, it suddenly took a a turn off the road and pulled into a resort. There the Cardinals found out the team management, the Bidwell family, had decided to bring the players and their families to spend the weekend at a resort as a reward whether they won or lost the college all-star game. Kind of a classy move by the organization at the time. Of course that year the Cardinals went 11-1 in the 1948 season. I feel personally that's the best team in Cardinal history. Unfortunately the team lost in the Snow Bowl uh, to the Eagles in December of 1948, so they failed to duplicate their championship of the year before. Meanwhile, the All-Star Game continued for almost three more decades, with the last college All-Star Game taking place on July 23, 1976, when the Steelers won a rain-shortened game. By this time, the owners of the teams were concerned about injuries, insurance, rookies not showing up to camp on time, and support and attendance was waning in those last few years in the early 70s. Till finally on December 21st, 1976, the Chicago Tribune announced that the All-Star Game would be discontinued. During the length of the series, the NFL grabbed 31 wins, lost only nine, and there were two ties. But the last victory for the Collegians was in 1963. So for now, enjoy your summer. Get ready for those training camps. But please check back with us for the next episode of When Football Was Football, when we'll dig deep into the oldest individual record in NFL history. And here's a hint. It will be 91 years old this season. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. We at the Sports History Network are so glad to introduce to you a new addition to our lineup. Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast is a weekly podcast that focuses on the history and memorabilia of North American football since its inception in 1869. It's hosted by Bob Swick, the publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and Joe Squires, a longtime contributor to that magazine. The podcast was launched in 2017 and has over 150 episodes that you can listen to now on a 
the Sports History Network as well as your favorite podcast provider. So join Bob and Joe as they go through football history, talking about the memorabilia and the great legendary players and games of the American Gridiron on the Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast.